welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the innovation podcast that can land an opening bit the way a private company can land uh, some kind of spacecraft on the moon. That's the alternative. <laughs> That's the alternative opening that I decided because the other opening has been, I think, too mean. <laughs> Determined <laughs> to be too mean by me. Uh, Kardec, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's a great start to the week. You know, Liverpool won the cup. Uh, you know, it was a very intense final. India won a, a, a game and, and the series after, you know, escaping the jaws of death, as you would say. I mean, two days ago, it looked really terrible. So I was so happy that, you know, the week started off on a good note. Wow. The positive vibes. You, you can't see this, but we should we should truly switch to a video podcast medium because the grin is like occupying <laughs> a huge, huge portion of the of the screen space here. This is a very happy guy. What about you, Mike? How was your weekend? My weekend was was pretty good, pretty low key. We were we were out of was working remote all last week because of uh, the kids off school, but uh, working nonetheless. I am glad to hear it. Um, yeah, we had a. It seemed like a pretty good week. I was in Houston last week, which was uh, interesting because I went south of Houston this time. I've only ever driven north to like the woodlands from uh, the airport, which is a unique experience in urban design, I guess you could call it. And then this time I drove south through Houston and actually spent time in Houston and then down to Galveston, which is also a unique experience in urban design, but in a kind of radically different sort of access. <laughs> uh, but it was it was an all right trip. I, I was at the uh, Society of Petroleum Engineers Conference in, in, or excuse me, the Society of Plastics Engineers Conference in Galveston, which was... Always a good time. Always a good time. Actually, some really great, uh, really great talks and research. And, um, you know, I learned some stuff for... Did some good networking. I was kind of surprised, though. I think the big thing, just to get into it, the the thing that surprised me was kind of how the top level goals from the chemical industry haven't really changed. And we're going to talk about this in in the European context in a second. There was a presentation from Chevron Phillips Chemical, and I, I don't think this is you know undisclosed information, but basically they said, hey, look, our, our big accomplishments, our big goals, we're building two world-scale facilities for uh, polyolefins, right? We're spending $8.5 billion on two world-scale facilities, two giant uh, crackers, right? And also, we're going to try and recycle a billion pounds or, you know, let's say 450 million tons of uh, polyolefins by 2030. And... <laughs> Those two goals are kind of at odds with each other. And there's not really a consideration of like, you know, what the actual circular economy looks like in practice, what it looks like in the context of uh, demand for, you know, plastics, right? And what it really looks like, you know, basically the fact that if you do, you and every other polyolefin company do end up recycling about 400 million pounds of, uh, of polyolefins, like, demand for polyolefins coming out of your cracker is going to go down. Those investments in world-scale facilities are going to have to be offset by reduction in capacity somewhere else. And, you know, maybe, like, recycling well, 400 million you... pounds does a bunch of other stuff, you know? Like, this is... Unless you do pyrolysis and you put right, that yeah, material yeah. through those world-scale crackers. But, like, 
you know, which is, I think, the, the thing. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there, if you ask a... them, that's what, what they would say is the plan, right? Presumably. Right. But there's no real recognition that, like, <laughs> I mean, I think there's no recognition that, A, like, mechanical recycling is going to increase. And all these people say, like, hey, pyrolysis is complementary to mechanical recycling, right? Um, yes. Because they don't want to say, we're going to take, they can't say we're going to take you know, good quality feedstock out of the hands of mechanical recyclers. So, like, <laughs> even if you take those three things as true, right? Like, the three things they're saying are, we're going to scale up production. Mechanical recycling is also presumably going to stay around at at least the same level that it currently is, if not more, presumably more. And a lot of them are saying that mechanical recycling also has to scale. Um, and they're also saying, you know, yeah, we're going to do a ton of plastic pyrolysis as well. <laughs> like if you scale mechanical recycling, basically, no, you're just not going to have the demand for these recycled plastics or these these primary plastics, I should say. So it was it was funny because and there was a big gap between like I feel like the people on the ground like everyone almost everyone I talked to one on one was very very aware of these issues and like seemingly spending a lot of effort in in either making the pyrolysis work the way it needed to or you know making mechanical recycling work for them you know there's a ton of mechanical recyclers there who are like pretty uniformly grumpy old men in that sort of in a way that engineering <laughs> industry can produce you know very like brilliant but but grumpy old men um yeah i have i have no fear that any of them are listening to this podcast but yeah it was just a fun it was a funny experience there's there's a lot of contradictions that need to be worked out in the industry still yeah just wanted to ask you anthony i mean uh, i don't follow the plastic recycling space much but uh at least what i know from solar panel recycling and what they do there is mechanical recycling is sort of like the first step where you you know sort out the different layers of a solar panel and then you can use, you know, you can use different processes, for example, pyrolysis or any other thermal treatment or chemical treatments to upcycle the materials that you've just sorted, right? Um, was there no talk of chemical recycling or using like novel solvents and things like that to upcycle or separate materials? Or was the focus just on pyrolysis? There was a lot of focus on the whole value chain. So there's actually a lot of focus on sorting and separation, that kind of stuff. Mm. There's a whole, a mm-hmm. whole track multiple tracks even on sorting and separation and there's a ton of focus on design right and that's really the biggest challenge in the plastic space compared to solar um is that you it's not worth it on an individual package level to deconstruct them the way you would deconstruct a solar panel right just because Mm -hmm. solar panels worth a lot of money a chip bag is generally worth less than a solar panel (laughs) so like of course you know you have to design these things in order to be recycled right that means Mm -hmm. It's a lot about what you don't do, what you choose to eliminate. So like inks and coatings, black colorant is typically pretty bad. You know, multi-layer packaging is really not recyclable. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of focus on that, both design and sorting and separation elements. I mean, that's all good. I like, and that's kind of like the disconnect. Like I think from a technological level, actually, the chemicals industry is doing a lot of the right stuff. Like it's not like the people aren't thinking about how do we design plastics to make them more recyclable. Like that was mm-hmm. clearly a top focus for, you know, the people at the conference, right? It's not like they're not thinking about how do we actually get this this system, this ecosystem to produce the kind of feedstocks, recycled feedstocks that we need. That's pretty mm-hmm. clearly a focus for the people at the at the conference. You could have these things happening in like an R and D level or an innovator level, but then like a chemicals enterprise is this huge ship that needs to be turned very slowly, right? 
um, and has these extremely big assets and these extremely expensive things. And so it's just like that change has not caught up with the biggest picture strategic direction just yet. Yeah. And it's interesting. So the other thing that, that I saw last week and was, was reading is there was this um, report that came out from the Center for Climate Integrity that is about plastic recycling, which is not pulling any punches. It's called The Fraud (laughs) of Plastic Recycling, How Big Oil and the Plastics Industry Deceived the Public for Decades and Caused the Plastic Waste Crisis. I feel like this is the same report that was published by Reuters. Reuters? 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 Reuters. Reuters. I feel like this is the same report that was published by (laughs) Reuters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, okay i'm gonna have to cut all of it i feel like that's the same report that was published by reuters yeah uh like years ago or like in 2019 18 maybe 2020 it's 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 very much the same story right that was in that investigation it might even cite it because it actually it actually cites quite a bit of like uh popular journalism on it more so than um you know the technical literature um but yeah i mean it's that same point like the uh <laughs> i don't just read the headlines you get the flavor or the he- section headings you get the flavor of it the majority of plastics cannot be recycled they never have been and never will be petrochemical companies created and perpetuated recycling as a false solution to plastic waste management and petrochemical companies ran and continue to run a decades-long campaign of deception and disinformation on on plastic recycling Right, which I think as that Reuters thing, there's definitely some truth in that narrative. If you go back and look at like in the 70s and 80s, there's all this concern about plastic waste and, uh, you know, the industry created those resin identification codes, the chasing arrow symbol, which kind of made people feel better about putting plastics in the recycling bin, even though a lot of them were and continue to be recycled at pretty low rates. And the ACC, the American Chemistry Council, put out a statement on this, which is kind of, you know, a little, it doesn't doesn't rebut it that much, that, that thoroughly. It's like, oh, this is changing the way plastics are made is a top priority for business as usual, won't fix the problem. This flawed report cites outdated decades old technology, which I think that is a kind of a fair point. And especially, you know, as the, the report says, plastics cannot be recycled, never have, and, and never will be, I think is too, is too strong. Like as you were describing from the SPE conference, right? There are actually a lot of innovations mm-hmm. that are going into not just, you know, trying to do these uh, advanced recycling solutions like pyrolysis and things, which this report is also quite critical of. And, you know, there's certainly fair criticisms to be made of, but, but there are innovations in improving mechanical recycling and, and things like that and um, solvent based approaches for, you know, that can help to, to increase recycling rates. Um, so it, it was an interesting little, you know, a kind of another go round of, of like you pointed out, a similar debate that's been going on between activists and, and the industry for a while. And I think there's, there's points being scored on, 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 on both sides to some degree, but uh, it is. It goes to the point that it is a big change for the industry. You're turning this, you know, massive, uh, massive ship of the, the entire chemical enterprise and entire entire industry. It's uh, it's going to be slow going, and it's going to be it's going to be pretty imperfect. Um, there is still, I think, a fair criticism to be made that a lot of the industry 
propaganda or marketing materials kind of oversells the extent to which these these recycling solutions are are effective today but you are seeing these these changes happening you know the companies investing big in mechanical recycling facilities and investing in advanced pyrolysis and, and approaches that i think can make it more successful and i think like to your your talk in at this that you gave at this event right talked about the evolving regulatory landscape and how at least in in some areas like actually europe there there could be more um, favorable opportunities for some of these uh, for some of these types of advanced recycling technologies that that could really kind of actually move it forward. So, Mike, I guess I'm curious because I haven't fully read the report, but this is from the climate protection, whatever climate conservation, climate whatever they were. They're climate guys, right? Center for Climate Integrity. Yeah. Center for Climate Integrity. I think the most compelling argument for plastics is that their carbon footprint's really low. And yeah. they generally do a lot of carbon footprint positive things like preventing food waste, right? And preventing, you know, transport emissions by being super duper lightweight compared to like glass and stuff. And this is something I think I heard from a lot of people at the uh, conference, which is like, hey, like, you know, the systemic benefits of plastics are actually net positive relative to a lot of other things and they have these positive features and we don't want to lose them because if we end up losing those positive features by switching to like paper packaging or back to glass packaging or whatever then there's going to be a lot of negative consequences and i think that's only sort of true like some of the stuff is like well, what if we decarbonize electricity production and we decarbonize transport? It's like, okay, well then, you know, the relative transport emissions aren't that big of a deal. But I think it is fair to say there are real advantages to plastics and I, you know, especially in, in the context of climate change. So I guess I'm curious, yeah. did the, the climate integrity guys engage with that at all? Or was it just like rah-rah stuff? And no, it, it unfortunately doesn't really uh, get into to that, that the... And, and yeah, I think that is, I mean, we've, you know, colleagues at Lux here have done research on, you know, things like the switching to, to paper packaging, even that can have a lot of other environmental impacts that, that plastic doesn't, because you need, of course, to grow and process, you need a lot of water and a lot of energy to process all that, grow all that biomass and process it into, uh, into paper packaging. So it's not, um, you know, the, the alternatives to plastic as much as everybody, you know, is, is uh, grossed out or, or repulsed by seeing, you know, waste plastic bags in the, in the, in the rivers or oceans and things like that. The other options do have, um, do have these concerns. And I, as uh, like Marsha and Lee, our colleague, uh, who's, who's done some good reports on this, has pointed out, like the plastics, if you're looking at it purely from a climate standpoint, you know, there are a lot of cases where the where the plastic solutions are better. Uh, maybe yeah. curious to ask you, because you mentioned environmental impact, uh, Mike, uh, do these people also look into the environmental impact of recycling plastics? Like, for example, with pyrolysis, you can have fluoride gas emissions or, or things like that that are bad for the environment microplastics from mechanical recycling yeah uh, so do they also use that as an argument to say recycling is bad and that's why they're frauds also yeah i mean i think in, in particular the the impacts from 
advanced recycling, pyrolysis um, facilities, and the, the the waste products that can be produced from that or the emissions from it is something that's been a big focus of the pushback on advanced recycling. That was a big reason that that, that Brightmark um, advanced recycling pyrolysis facility that was planned in Georgia got canceled a couple of years ago um, was because of the a big part of that was concerned about the impact on, on, on local waterways. So that's, that's definitely an issue and it's something, you know, the industry does have to, does have to address, particularly when you get into the concerns about, you know, where these things are, uh, these facilities are being located. Is it, is it, you know, disproportionately impacting certain communities and, and so on. So Mike, I think what the plastics or excuse me, the climate integrity people for, are pushing for is some kind of regulation and the chemicals industry also has a view on what the regulation should be <laughs> and, and i think industry a bit more broadly so you posted this this antwerp declaration um in the in the chat of to us a little while ago can, can you like just break us down what's going on with the antwerp declaration and like maybe how does it fit into this broader question of like what does sustainability actually look like and who is responsible for it and, and how should it be paid for? Yeah. So the Antwerp declaration came out, uh, last week now. So, uh, 73 industrial companies in Europe, including basically all the big, uh, chemicals companies that, uh, that you'd think of BASF and Covestro and, uh, Solve, Science Co and all the rest, uh, put out this, uh, you know, call for, basically better industrial policy in in Europe, you know, holding up the, you know, and, and in response to, as there's been a lot of discussion about, including on this podcast, the, uh, the competing with the impact that the IRA has had in the US. And my initial reaction to this was, was a little bit skeptical, because it's, it's, it's basically uh, deregulate us, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> and deregulate us, but also give us a lot of money. Presumably, well, I, I mean, if it were deregulate us but give us a lot of money, like I could almost get behind by that more. I think there's there's less. I think in general, Europe has has been a little too has been too reluctant to to focus on the fiscal aspect of this. And the reason the IRA is successful and it's having the the impact it has is it spends a lot of money on 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 this, and that is is something that on on climate technologies, manufacturing technologies, right? That is something that we as a society are going to need to do to make this this energy uh, transition successfully. It, it, that's that's not easy to do. It's going to require a lot of money from uh, from from government, frankly, to to invest and get these these technologies over the hump and uh, and and create the right sorts of incentives for industry to to, to deploy them. And I think there's been an, a general reluctance in in Europe. A lot of countries have this, you know, very strong resistance to deficit spending, and and uh, in in the, the the political culture there, I think that's been a, a limitation of the European response. And so I think if, if they were asked, they were calling for the EU to and 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 member governments to like actually go out and spend a lot of money on on making this transition. Like I think that would be a be a big step forward, but. Uh, the the fiscal parts of it, as as best I I could tell, were more about kind of moving moving money around, and this is how you know some of these funds from these existing programs, like the um, 
you know, recovery and resilience facility and repower you um, programs it should be should be spent and allocated. And even in things that's like increase the EU's raw material security and most of that, it's kind of like, well, you know, you've got to make it not so difficult to open up mines or processing facilities in, in, in Europe. So to me, it seemed at first like uh, you got to spend the money and this sort of call for deregulation is is a, a little bit of a weak way of, of, of approaching it. But I was talking with one of our colleagues this morning and he brought up the, uh, um, as we've talked about before, I, I don't know if on the podcast or off, the, the Enios, Enios um, uh, cracker that they've been uh, trying to build, you know, one that is is more advanced and has really high uh, environmental standards uh, that they've been trying to build in Antwerp, and that's been been blocked repeatedly by and and is still blocked by the um, uh, you know regulations related to the to the impact on, on on nitrogen emissions. You know that is a real important issue and and you know concerns around that. But I think that you know what our my colleague was saying is that you know he talks to to clients who and, and companies we work with who could say like. For some of these programs in the in the U.S., the IRA programs, I can go on, I can fill out a form online, and with the, if I have the right documentation, get approved for my tax credit within 24 hours, and that's like the equivalent process that can just go on for months and months, and in some places in Europe. So I I do think there's a fair you know a need to maybe not to deregulate or uh, however you would want to frame it, but but there is there is a need for the regulations to be to be smart and effective and flexible and you know things decisions to get made quickly on them and uh, that that something you know the IRA struggles with also right there's mm-hmm. a lot of projects that have you know that are waiting to get approval for interconnection and things things like that because or that have been uh, blocked by you know nimbyism and things as we've talked about on on the pod as well. So it's not to say that the U.S. doesn't have that that issue, but I, I do think it's it's fair to to draw some attention to that. Even though I think the you know ultimately the fiscal element and this and the and the need to make these collective investments, I, I think is is still a pretty important one and one of the key things that that the IRA in the U.S. gets right. Maybe uh, just curious to know is because you know. The IRA basically talks about, or, or if you want to you know, explain the IRA to a layman, it's just throwing money around at different technologies and try to scale them up as quickly as possible, right? But what I saw with Europe and the critical mineral space in general is that Europe is so far behind, like 98%, for instance, in the wind turbine industry, 98% of all critical minerals they need come from China, right? Uh, even if Europe decides to throw money at this point, I think they're so far behind that they're never going to catch up, right? Or, or, or do you think that even if they do that, there is some hope for, for Europe to catch up? In critical minerals in general, future demand compared to current supply, like we really don't produce that many of that much critical mm-hmm. minerals, right? It's not like steel, where in steel, China has such an overwhelming capacity lead but also it's like the raw scale of it is like billions of tons or not billions of tons, but like millions of tons, right? It's like this huge, huge, huge volume of stuff, right? So critical minerals, it's like, okay, yeah, China produces 98% of the world supply or whatever it is, but you're talking about a hundred thousand to 200,000 tons of materials, right? Like total critical minerals production is like only a couple hundred thousand tons, right? So like, I think it's a very different thing to say we're going to scale up our own production 
because you're not talking about that much raw stuff. It's obviously hard to get. It's hard to process. It's chemically very nasty to process with the current t- techniques. And that's one of the reasons why China is a leader. But like, it to me, it's just much more realistic to say, oh, we're going to produce our own critical minerals as opposed to say like, hey, we're going to like stop importing steel from China. It's like, that just doesn't make a ton of sense, like structurally. So I think it's a lot more possible. I guess on a higher level, Mike, it's curious because like, like what is the mechanism that they're actually aiming for here? It's like, okay, boost demand for net zero, low carbon and circular products. And it's like empower customers to choose net zero and circular products. Like, is that really, (laughs) is that really the solution? Like, you know, do market stuff. I mean, like, one way to boost demand for net zero products is to make, you know, non net zero products illegal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can just say like, you can just put a carbon tax. That was one of the crazy things. It's like, I was at this talk and this guy gave this Chevron Phillips, like top level guy gave this talk. And one of the things he said is like, um, just straight up, we're not going to do any carbon. Well, we've, he showed this graph. He's like, we've mapped out every single carbon emissions reduction project we could do. These are the ones that make money. These are the ones that cost money. We're not going to do any of the ones that cost money until there's a cost of carbon. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, like, yeah. like, cool. Like, that's, that's great. Like, I was like, all right, like, that's, that. Would, I'm glad he's saying it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just put a cost of carbon on, you know what I mean? Like, it, it didn't sure. even seem like he was, it's like at this point, like the businesses are practically just like, yo, give us a carbon tax. Like <laughs> we're basically ready for a carbon tax at this point. Yeah. Um, and then he said, he said one other thing, which was funny. But I can't remember, but anyway, it's just like, yeah, like these, these companies are ready in a lot of places. And I feel like the European companies are ready too. They just need to like get that different. They just kind of need to get their minds right. Well, I mean, they, they have it, right? There's the... the yeah, the, I mean more in general. Market, there's the border yeah, the border adjustment uh, mechanism, which is, uh, you know, which is a real thing and, and, and is happening. And I think that, that's sort of, you know, as you've pointed out, I think in some of the, the webinars and talks that you've gave on this, given on this, um, there's a real opportunity for, for Europe to be to be a leader in part because of some of these uh, these mechanisms that are in place. A lot of the companies do have really good capabilities and, and technology for for low carbon products and, and and climate tech in general that that actually will be really valuable and, and necessary in in the energy transition. So um, so yeah, some some of that I, I think works, but I, I do think that there is still that that need for. Uh, some level of and i think a higher level of public investment to uh to really to really help make that transition here's a conversation sort of related to this that i had at the conference which is people were like who's going to pay for all this right and what i said is like look the consumer always pays for everything because people general people are the source of money like that's like income is generated by people spending money on goods and services and by people working, right? Like that's where like the flow of money originates, right? And like to the extent that value is created, if money comes, you know, from anywhere, it comes from people working jobs and creating value for the economy and like adding their labor to like raw materials to turn into products, right? That's where all money comes from, you know, like on a sort of mechanistic level. 
So like the consumer always pays for this stuff, either through taxes or through increased prices. But the question is, what is the how is that economic pain? How is that cost distributed throughout the economy? Right. Like you can imagine the cost being distributed between different industries. Right. In different ways, like the cost of certain products is not going to go up at the same rate across different industries. The cost of these different, you know, the profitability of certain industries is not going to go up and down. It, like they're going to go at different rates, and like the the costs that are upfront to the consumer versus the costs that are hidden to the consumer can change a lot. Like carbon emitting carbon is the thing about carbon taxes is that it is there is a price on carbon, right? When you emit a ton of carbon, you cause climate change and that ultimately comes back and costs you know some amount of money depending on who you ask and where you live it's like i don't know as low as 30 dollars a ton or as high as 120 something dollars a ton but like you know i think like the global estimated cost of carbon emissions is like around 100 dollars a ton like it causes 100 dollars of damage measured in more intense weather net present value of future climate disasters basically <laughs> yeah basically it's it's about 100 dollars a ton right so, like, the reality is people are bearing those costs, right? There's no equation. There's no, like, it's not like if you don't have a cost of carbon, someone isn't bearing those costs. Someone mm-hmm. is bearing those costs. They're just not paying in money, necessarily. Uh, immediately, they're paying in damage. You know, they're paying in money 20 years down the line right. when, when a climate disaster happens, right? Like, the question of who pays is really one of like who pays geopolitically right like do we damage the third world do we damage developing economies which is what we've been doing you know and or do we actually like you know make western and first world you know consumers responsible for their their carbon emissions but yeah, I mean, I think what the what the what the the challenge with that is the politics, right? I mean, if you're going to put a carbon price and it's going to lead to increased costs for a lot of the things that you know, sort of regular people buy in here and now, that's that that has a political effect in the way that you know, people in you know, Bangladesh or 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 wherever pay you know suffering in twenty years in the future does does not uh, you know it has a very real cost, but it's it's not one that has the same. You know, just to be blunt about it, it doesn't have, for good or for ill, it doesn't have the same political effect uh, in the countries that are that are that are making these decisions. For ill, I think. No, for, for ill, fair enough. <laughs> pretty, pretty clearly, clearly for, for Ill, as far as I'm concerned. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but and I think you know the IRA in in the U.S. reflects the fact that it, this sort of money spending approach is is a lot more palatable than the the, the cost approach, even though it it. You know, it does end up, you know, as Anthony said, going towards affecting people in the form of, you know, perhaps higher prices or higher future taxes or, you know, it, it, the, that, that does still, of course, come from come from somewhere or have some some effect. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see, I think, sort of what the what the limit of that of that approach is. I mean, there's been a, a mix of, you know, there's always a mix of carrot and sticks, right? Mm-hmm. In the U.S. is, you know, certainly the the you know, Obama era plans that have helped to, you know, you know, have encouraged the shutting down of coal plants and, and things like that of, you know, there's, there's been some sticks too. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not unfamiliar, but I, I do think, um, you know, at some point there is a, a chance that the politics does come back around to, 
um, you know, simply because the the having running higher deficits is that at some point in unpalatable, you could come around to the point of there being a real carbon tax as, um, you know, one of the the most or the least unpalatable ways uh, it, it, in that sense to, to to balance the budget and and or to 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 address the the need for revenue um, maybe better to say um, but that's that's not something I think is is in the the political landscape in the U.S. in the foreseeable future. I think it would be nice to have like a very high carbon tax and then use that money to fund an RE project. Be like every pound you spend goes to building a solar panel or something like that. I don't know. I mean that's. That's basically what we should do. It's not it's not mm-hmm. even really controversial. Like we're just not really capable as a society of doing anything long term. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tough. I mean just like a, a carbon just a carbon tax by itself. Like a carbon tax and you just took the money and lit it on fire and you removed it from the economy would probably be a net benefit to society. The fact that you can then turn around and spend that money on like stuff that's even more beneficial to society is icing on the cake. Right. I mean, and that's the, you know, it, it, the U.S. doesn't have as, as sharp a problem with this as as a number of other countries do. But, you know, we still have an aging society. We still do have, um, you know, without going sort of uh full Paul Ryan here, I think you can you can say there's there's definitely gonna be some some needs to think about how we how we fund um you know some of the just the general social programs and operation of the government that we need in, in the future. And that's why I do think that that carbon tax um option is is something that it could make sense for because I think it's something as you pointed out, Anthony, the industry's pretty open to. Yeah, I don't even that's the thing that's crazy. It's like who at this point, it just seems like the institutions that are supposed to govern this kind of thing have broken down to the point that they're not even really capable of delivering the kind of policy that everyone is pretty much aligned on. Like, that's the thing that's crazy about the Antwerp stuff. Industry is talking to government. And like, government is not, it's not like we're in this era of, you know, antitrust regulation. We're not in this era of like, big you know, socialism or anything. We're not in this era. Like, like these governments, a lot of, like, you ask any of them and they're like, yeah, we're pro-business. We're like the most pro-business government around, right? <laughs> like, like no government is, is has a confrontational or, or an antagonistic relationship with big business. That's not the relationship that governments have at this point. Even like, you know, like the Democratic Party in, in America, barely, like they're the party that did the IRA, right? Like you look at these sort of like declarations or any of the things and it's like, why, what kind of government, why can't government deliver on some of this stuff, right? Like, <laughs> like why can't government deliver on, on some of like the, even like the least controversial, like the money stuff, it's like, okay, you have to raise taxes, you have to fund it. Or, you know, if you're German, like, the government's just never allowed to spend money. Like, you know, like there's a cultural thing there. It just seems like the institutions are really failing to meet this moment of demand. And I don't even really know why, because the stuff they're failing to meet is not even like, it's not even the hard stuff that they're failing to do. It's basically, it's basically where I'm coming from here. And I, I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know what it means. It's just like hard to, Imagine where we go from here. You know, there's stuff that there's sort of consensus around with respect to 
you know, quote unquote elites, right? Those things that business would actually be be pretty much fine with. But there's there is, I think, a bit of a broader breakdown of, you know, kind of social trust and 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 cohesion and 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 you know, you have all of these 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 populist movements that are rejecting a lot of the things that that may be, you know, consensus amongst the sort of you know, business and, and, and political leaders. And that, that is one of the things that's throwing politics, so throwing some of the politics around these, these things into, you know, into a, to a state where it's, it's harder to get them to work. You know, it is kind of a new era in terms of, yeah, the roles that some of these different kinds of ideologies and, and without getting, getting too political here, a different era in terms of the role that some of these kind of ideologies and movements play and and I think a lot of politicians haven't really figured out how to operate in that environment and you know I certainly don't have the answers for that either but I think there is this sort of kind of underlying uneasiness that's that's certainly not helping the the political system to to, to respond the way you know I think like you said there's often a lot of consensus that it should at least in certain circles or the circles that would have traditionally been influential. If I were to put myself in the shoes of a climate duma, let's say, are carbon taxes that effective? Because at least in Europe, as far as I understand, it's a it's an unregulated market, right? The market decides, uh, as in the players who are part of the market decide, you know, and, and how that thing goes, like the stock price, right? It, that's how, uh, you know, the price of carbon is dictated. Is it too low? I remember on the podcast, we discussed, you know, carbon prices were at $89, $90, $84, $84 something like that. Um, is it too high? Is it too low? Uh, so what should be the cost of carbon in reality? Like, how do they make up for that? That makes everyone happy. The reason why I asked that was because when I was at the conference, I remember the the, the general idea I got when people were talking about the, the CBAM and not just that, but the EU emissions trading scheme was that it's the best scheme in the world. And this is how the everyone else should adopt it. But I was like, that's not true, because if that were the case, then the carbon prices would be way higher and we would be implementing more RE projects at this point, which we are not. I'm sure the prices are going up and, and good credit to that, but it's not the best system, right? That's the, the funny thing about like, what is the best system, right? Where it's like, is it the best system that's possible in reality, that's achievable in the political reality that we live in? Or is it the best system in abstract, right? And I think... I think you can make a fair argument that it's the best. I mean, it's the best system that currently exists. I think that's totally fair. Is it the best system that could ever exist? Maybe. Maybe in our political reality, it's the best system that could ever exist. But I think it's certainly pretty far from the best system that could ever exist in theory. And I think, you know, I mean, just put a flat price on carbon. Like, like not flat as in terms of just like the dollar value never changes, but flat as in you just get rid of all the exemptions, right? And just, just crank the, the carbon price up every year. Because I think that's like, this is kind of where I'm at with a lot of government stuff these days anyway. It's just like, make it as simple as possible. And that's like, one of the things I appreciate about the IRA. It's like, so in some ways it's really simple. Like it really is this, this sledgehammer of just like, you're going to get this much tax credit for like doing this activity. And like, there's not much to contemplate outside of it. You don't have to apply, you know, you don't have to like get approved. There's no like, yes or no. It's like if you're doing the thing and you, these are the criteria to demonstrate that you've done the thing, you get the money. And like the money goes away after a certain point, but like, you know, it is what it is, right? And it's just like, it's just very straightforward in that way. And 
to me so much of like the European funding because Europe funds so much of like innovation. Like they do as much roughly innovation funding as the United States, even factoring in stuff like the IRA. But the way that innovation funding is structured is like just not <laughs> very user-friendly. Like it's a lot of like layers of funding and like different sort of rings of concentric rings of complexity, but also like stakeholder alignment. And it's good at like creating stakeholder alignment, but just like sometimes you don't need to align the stakeholders. You just need to tell the stakeholders what to do. Like <laughs> at this point, you know, the like carbon emissions bad, like stop doing it. And like, we're going to punish you more and more and more every year for that. And like green electricity, good. And we're just going to pay you to build green electricity, right? There's all these systemic effects that, like, we're trying to compensate for. And I don't know that, like, actually doing any of that stuff produces a better system than just doing the simplest thing. And, like, it's like, oh, there's all these fears about the IRA where it's like, we could get oversupplied on electricity. We're not going to be able to build grid interconnects. We could be oversupplied on hydrogen. We're not going to be able to consume all this hydrogen. It's going to encourage people to build bad hydrogen capacity that's higher carbon emissions and it's like okay sure like there are these negative system effects right that are potentially going to happen maybe they're even likely to happen right maybe they're going to maybe they're guaranteed to happen but there's so much urgency around the climate issue that like it's probably just worth it just to like take the sledgehammer break down the wall and like figure out what happens next after you've done that yep all right that's all we have time for if you like this podcast i encourage you to like it Subscribe to it. Please rate it. That does help us out on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And uh, we have some great episodes lined up in the future. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all the latest news, opinions, and articles.